contentment and about how to be content. Now remember we said that Webster defines contentment as the state or quality of being satisfied, not displeased. But there's a problem with that definition because that could also encompass complacency or things that are only temporal, they're only brief moment in time but they're there. Because everybody has times when things are going the way they like. And when things go the way you like, you're generally pretty pleased, aren't you? But we all know things change, sometimes too rapidly, and things aren't going the way you'd like, and then what are you? Displeased. So suddenly, by his definition, you no longer can be content. We also know that even when you have that sense of... um, sense of pleasure that comes when you finally achieve some goal, too quickly it diminishes because, well, now you've achieved it. And so it's so big, big deal. The satisfaction diminishes so rapidly and so we would lose our contentment there. Now, some people can gain contentment from their complacency. Now, that's a sad substitute for what God would like us to have. Complacency. Many people, including some professing Christians, find that kind of contentment something based on just what is the immediate, something that might just be temporary, something that might just be complacency as their form of contentment. Too often, even as Christians, we give over ourselves over to one of the various philosophies that really are, are Satan-inspired, and he's deceived man. So Webster's definition is really not adequate for contentment if we're going to have that as Christians. God wants us to learn to be content, but in a different sense. Remember, we've been studying Philippians 4, actually 10 through 19, but these particular verses are the key to contentment. Starting in verse 10, Paul says this, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lack opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He learned to be this. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we've discussed that in detail in the last couple of weeks. Now, Paul in the passage goes on. He thanks the Philippians for their gift and he seeks to encourage them. But for Paul, contentment is not passive. It is something he is actively involved in. And this contentment is something where he feels the full range of human emotion. All the good stuff and all the bad stuff. He has it all. And yet he remains in control. He remains self-satisfied. And he is still pursuing the purposes for which God made him regardless of circumstances. It is being content while living life to its fullest. Or as I said last week to use the title from Swindoll's commentary on Ecclesiastes, it's living life on the ragged edge and still being content. Now the contentment Paul speaks about here then must be based on something that's far beyond this temporal world we live in. It has to be. It must have a foundation, something that's eternal, something strong, something unchanging. Something that can be trusted even when life turns bitter or tragic. That kind of contentment can only come to those who hold to biblical Christian theism. 
Because there is a real and true, infinite, personal creator God. And he has revealed himself in both all that he has made and in his word that I might know him and have a personal relationship with him. He loved me so much much that while yet a sinner, he sent Jesus Christ to die in my stead, to take that penalty of sin from me upon himself that I might have this relationship with him. I belong to God. My life then makes sense only in pursuing his will for my life. His purposes in everything. Now remember that the definition of the Greek word here for contentment in verse 11 means to be self-sufficient, not needing assistance outside. Because Jesus Christ is sufficient in and for all things, as I walk with him, I need no other assistance. I don't need anything outside. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippians. I am grateful for what you've given to me. I am truly thankful, but I'm even more thankful because of what it says about you, because God has already met my needs. Yes, you are a means by which he's doing it, but I see my God in action through you, and that's what thrills me. God working through you, not the thing itself. Paul was sufficient in Christ. The key here, the secret of contentment, really is verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the context of the passage. I am self-sufficient in Christ for he strengthens me to do all that God asks of me. And I can live my life in such a way that regardless of circumstances, I can fulfill the very purpose for which he created me. The very reason that I exist and I can bring glory to God. No matter what's going on around me. He has made his power available to me so that I can do what honors him no matter what my emotional state no matter how I feel, no matter what the situation. So my life is no longer controlled by circumstances. It's controlled by the Holy Spirit who indwells me. That's the difference. That's why a Christian can be content in any circumstance. It's the Holy Spirit and his power living through you, not you just having to deal with whatever's around. Now, I may not like what's happening. I might prefer something else. My emotions might be extremely strong at the moment in a negative sense because I really don't like it. And yet, I'm no longer a thermometer, fluctuating up and down with every changing situation. And say, I'm a thermostat. The Holy Spirit can use me to change the world around me as I carefully, thoughtfully, considerately think through His will and do His will instead of what maybe my emotions might be. Instead of reacting to circumstances, I'm responding in a godly manner to them and changing them. Too many Christians, though, this seems more like a cliche. It's not living reality because we struggle with it. Our emotions come out and we blast away or we're despondent or whatever is going on. When circumstances are good, you're a nice person to be around. When circumstances are bad, we all back off, right? Now, my family knows that the only circumstance they really have to be careful of is if I'm working under the hood of the car. They stay away from me. It's a bad circumstance. Okay? We all have them, don't we? Paul said he learned to do this. So it's not something that's automatic. It's not going to be instantaneous. But you can learn to respond better in the power of the Holy Spirit to whatever circumstances are going on. That's the whole point here. Not that you're perfect yet because you're not and I'm not. Ask my kids. My wife covers up for me better than they do. (laughs) That'd be more blunt. But God is changing us, isn't he? 
And that is what's exciting about here. We can learn to be content. Now, the rest of this morning, I want to talk about this. How do we do this in a practical manner? We've given the theory. We've given the biblical principles. But how do we actually incorporate this in our life in a very practical way? I told you before that the key here really is going to be walking with God. That's the key. By faith, I have to walk with God. But to do that, I must first know God personally, right? I need to be a true Christian. Otherwise, I, I can't do that. I have to be transformed into his image. Or I should be saying, being transformed. And the closer I walk with God, the more my faith is exercised, the more the power of the Holy Spirit is working through me, and I can be more content. But I need to go God, know God personally. That's first. Second, I need to remember who God is and what he has done. How often in circumstances do you forget what God's character is like? We do, don't we? Sometimes we actually want to accuse him of having a character opposite of what he really has because we don't like how things are going. And then I've got to remember what he's already done for me because that gives me confidence that if I face the future, he's got a track record. And it's a great one, isn't it? I can trust him for that. Even when out there in the future, I don't know what's going on. I can trust him to lead me through that. I need to know him. I need to remember who he is and what he's done. I also need to be obedient in following him. That is regardless of the emotions that may be involved at the moment. I cannot shy away from the troubles and trials of life. I may feel like that. I may want to do that, but I can't do it. I have to submit myself to God and be obedient to him. So I face head-on the things that are coming up, submitting to his commands, his principles, the precepts of his word, and let him do whatever he needs to do. That includes changing my life. That means that I must humbly yield to God's sovereign plans in all circumstances. Again, I may not like them, and yet I have to have this attitude of, Lord, thank you that I'm here. Again, I may not be happy about the present situation, but as I remember that I have been buried with Christ and then raised to new life in Him and to live in the power of His resurrection, I can live differently. I don't have to respond the way I used to. I can respond in a different manner, in a way that's pleasing Him. I no longer have to be controlled by circumstances. Why? I'm not in charge anyway. God's in charge. All I have to do is follow him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? The problem is that we often don't want to follow him. We want to do it our own way. But it really boils down to that. All I really have to do is follow him. Even the trials that come upon us, we can see God working in them because God matures us through trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 tells that. Romans 5 Verses 3 through 8 tell us that. Actually going on to verse 11. But they both tell us that. The trials, the tribulations of life, the hard things we go through, God uses in our life and helps us become more like Christ. He makes us what we're supposed to be through the tough things. If we always avoided them, we wouldn't grow, would we? Now let's look at some real life situations. I mentioned some of these a couple of weeks ago. And let's see, how can you be content in these real situations? All of them are things that have happened to people I know or myself. You can relate with them. I've expanded them a little bit to, so that maybe you can see something you've dealt with. What principles do we apply in the situation right as it's happening 
so that we can learn to be content in it. Well, first, what are the general principles? The first one, remember, who is God? Well, generally, he's what? He's our eternal creator. Then there's all his attributes. He's holy, he's just, he's pure, he's righteous, he's good, he's gracious, uh, he's loving kind, he's sovereign, he's all-wise, he's all-knowing, he's, uh, he's everywhere present, he's all-powerful, he's unchanging, uh, he's true, he's a source of life, he's a source of, of, of all I need for life. He sustains me in life. Those are just general characteristics of God, right? Who is he? Second, what has he done? Well, certainly he has continued to supply me with all the needs that I have for life. That's one of his roles. So he's a source of physical life, salvation. He's a source of love, even to sinners. He is a source of my hope. He does love me. In fact, he, he has, has given me every good and perfect gift that I need. That's what he has done. Jesus Christ, the, the paramount demonstration of his love to me. What biblical principles apply? Well, some general ones, and these will come up over and over again. Romans 5, 3 through 8. I always have hope, because no matter what is going on, I know that God loves me. He proved it when Jesus Christ died in my place while I was a sinner, so there's no question that he loves me. I can't accuse him of not loving me. He's already proved it. In fact, he doesn't have to do anything else to prove he loved me. He already did it. So I always have hope because of that truth. God uses the trials of life to test our faith and mature us, making us more like Jesus. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We also know that God is sovereign and he works in all situations for good to those who love and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. It's not a cliche. It's a truth that we can build our life around. We have a sovereign God. God who loves us and will work in our behalf. We also know, 1 Corinthians 10.13, that God always provides a way of escape or a means by which we can endure any temptation that comes upon us. That means whenever I sin or someone else sins, I can't blame God. He didn't do it. I did it. They did it. Not him. Okay? Those are general principles. But these ones are going to come up over and over again as we look at specific situations. And the fourth, how can you obey him? Well, I have to look. What specific actions do I need to take in response to who he is, what he has done, biblical principles, and being obedient to him? I have to look for that. So let's look at some specific situations. First of all, people don't like you. Anybody ever have that happen to them? Someone doesn't like you? Co-worker, family member, your neighbor, somebody, right? We've all experienced that. Somebody doesn't like you. Depending on that person, it may not bother us at all or it may devastate us. Who is God? Well, first of all, he's your creator, isn't he? He's the one that created you. So who do you belong to? God. Okay? So who is God? He's creator. What has he done for you? Well, Romans 5.8, again, going back to that same passage, he loved you while you were a sinner, took your place, redeemed you through Jesus Christ. He proved his love. What are some biblical principles that could apply? Well, there's a lot of them. I'm just picking a couple of them. Galatians 1.10, we find that Paul asks, are we seeking the favor of God or striving to please men? Because if we're still seeking to please men, then we're not being good bondservants of, of God, of Christ. Our priority got mixed up. Our first priority is pleasing God, not men. So if they don't like me because I'm pleasing God, you know, that's okay because God loves me. <laughs> if they don't, God loves me, so 
I'm still okay. Another question, Romans 12.8 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's a good biblical principle to apply when people don't like you. Maybe they don't like you because you did something that, that offends them. Are you doing what you can do as, as much as possible to be at peace with them, to resolve conflicts? So how can I obey him? Well, let's face it. It hurts not to be liked. We all want to be liked. But you can be content in God's love. And out of that contentment in his love, then I can strive to be at peace with all men. Again, I may need to talk with them, work something out. But if it relates with following God, then God's first in everything. I then strive to be a, a good testimony for him and be content in just simply pleasing him. We even love our enemies and pray for them, as, Ma- as Matthew uh, 5.44 tells us. So if they don't like me, I'm sorry they don't like me. God loves me. My response back is, I am to be a vessel of God's love to them. I'll pray for them. Seek to work out any difficulties. And so I can be content, even when people don't like me. Let's make it worse. It's your in-laws that don't like you, and they're interfering with your marriage, or we'll put the flip on it, is that it's your, your parents don't like your spouse and are interfering, Okay? That's a little closer to home, isn't it? That hurts. You want your in-laws to be supportive of your marriage. Well, what do you do then? Well, again, who is God? Well, Matthew 6, 9 tells us he's our Father who is in heaven, right? So who's really Daddy? <laughs> God is. No matter what. What has he done for us? Well, Ephesians 1, 5 says he's adopted us into his family. So the most important family is the family of God. And that's where we belong. What are some biblical principles apply? Well, again, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of verses there. But for something briefly, Ephesians 6, 2 and Exodus 20, verse 12, both tell us that we need to honor our parents. To honor them. Show them respect. You know what? That would include your spouse's parents. Second, Acts 24, 16, says we are to do our best at maintaining a blameless conscience before God and before men. Make sure your part is correct in how you're dealing with them. If they don't like you, make sure it's not because you are doing something to antagonize them against you. Uh, next, Matthew 19.5, Genesis 2.24, we find that the husband-wife relationship is the priority in marriage and in this new family. Not mom and dad going up or grandma and grandpa. The husband-wife relationship is the priority because the man is to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. That's the biblical priority. Those two become one flesh. And what God has joined together, no one is to separate, Matthew 19, 6. So, how do you apply these principles? How can you obey him? Well, certainly try to resolve whatever problem there is with the in-laws or your parents. But you know what? You may need to warn them about interfering in the marriage and the consequences that may come if they continue. That sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? But that's the biblical principle. The husband-wife relationship is the priority. And they are not to interfere. So you keep the priority of your marriage and be content in knowing you are part of God's family. Continue to keep the role that God has given you for your family and be content in Him no matter how your in-laws or your parents respond. That's His priority. Let's make it more personal. I can get more personal than that. Okay, it's your spouse. Your spouse isn't satisfying to you. Uh, 
They're not romantic enough. Guys, have you ever heard that one? Never. I am glad to hear that, Alan. <laughs> um, she doesn't please you. Ladies, you ever hear that one? You're not pleasing me. You're not doing what I want. I wanted something else for dinner. That's not too good, is it? You want something different. As one person said, the grass is greener. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence because that's where the septic tank is. <laughs> so who is God? Well, Job 33.4 tells us, He's the one that gave me life. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. What has He done for you? Matthew 19.6, Jesus made it very clear. What God has joined together. So you thought you chose her? You thought you chose Him? Maybe in one sense, but guess what? God joined you together. Okay? It's his will you stay together. What biblical principles apply? Well, there's all the various roles of God given in marriage. How does he want you to fulfill your role? Husbands, you are told three times in Ephesians 5 to love your wife. And the example? Christ loving the church. So I guarantee every man here has a ways to go in completing that example to their wife. We're still working on it. We're just grateful that our wives are tolerant enough to continuing to allow us to the privilege of working towards that when we're not loving as Christ is. But that's commands to us. Wives, they're commanded to submit and respect to their husbands. Not avoid, uh, obey, submit. That means it's an act of your will to follow his leadership which God has placed upon him. That's also in Ephesians 5. Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. That means you make a study of her and try and figure her out. Yes, it is difficult. But she's also commanded in another place to be taught to love you, so you must be more difficult. That's in Titus. Wives, in fact, in 1 Peter 3, are told to win their husbands by their chaste and respectful behavior. (laughs) Because he's not listening anyways. Those are biblical principles, aren't they? Well, how do you obey these things? Well, fulfill the role that God has given you. Be more concerned about pleasing God in how you're acting and reacting than about pleasing yourself. Please God, please your spouse, and you're not important in this equation. Now, I know that against, goes against our, our self-desires, but that's the God's priority. Love God, love your spouse, and let Him take care of you. Not your spouse, God. Find your contentment in that very thing. Live to see what God is doing, working and changing you and then how God is using you in the life of your spouse. Because that's what our life is about anyways. What about when things uh, aren't just bad, they've broken down to the point that, uh, we'll give this one out for those who aren't married, their boyfriend, girlfriend, their fiancé breaks up. They've ended the relationship with you. That hurts. It hurts a lot. I think most everybody here has probably had that to some degree. I've had a broken engagement. It does hurt. Some of you have had the same thing. What do you do then? Well, same questions. And the first question is what? Who is God? We're going to get doing this because I'm going to have this drilled into you by the time we're done. Who is God? Well, Numbers 23, 19 tells us, He is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. 
What has he done? He's promised never to leave me or forsake me. So I can trust that promise, can't I? Because of who he is. Well, some biblical principles that apply here. Well, same as those we did earlier about people not liking you. I try to be at peace with people as far as it depends on me. Romans uh, 12.18 I seek to please God, not people. Galatians 1.10 uh, I realize God is maturing me in the midst of trials. James 1.2-4 And I realize that God does work together for good all things to those who love and are called according to his purpose. So God is going to do something good in the midst of this thing that is tearing my heart apart. That's um, Romans 8.28. And then I also have to throw in 1 Corinthians 13.4-8. What is the real nature of love? True love seeks the best for the other person. I've got to start asking myself, is that what I'm really doing? Am I thinking that way or just looking to see what I'm going to get? So how can I obey him? I've got to put these principles in action. I need to seek to resolve any conflicts that are there. I need to learn from what mistakes, failures that I've had. And I can guarantee you, we've had them. Because in any relationship, there's always two. And then I need to learn to extend to them this godly love of 1 Corinthians 13. To be God's channel of love to them, regardless of their reactions towards me. I need to be, in fact, glad about something else. It is difficult to have a broken relationship with a boyfriend-girlfriend. It's difficult to have a uh, fiancé break an engagement. But a broken marriage is a lot worse. Be glad that it came out now before that commitment was made so you can grow and mature and be a better individual for whoever it is that God would have for you. So we can obey him and we can learn to be content in the midst of the heartache. What if the marriage did take place and now your spouse wants a divorce? Well, again, who is God? Well, God is the one that joins you together. What has he done for you? He made you alive in Christ, Ephesians 2.5. You were dead in trespass sin. He made you alive in Christ. He raised you up that you might walk in newness of life with him and be a slave of righteousness instead of slave of sin, Romans 6. So what biblical principles apply? Again, a lot of them, Malachi 2, 15, 16, God hates divorce. That's certainly a principle that has to apply here. Uh, Ephesians 5, 32. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So it's not just about the two of you. It's about the glory of God. Then also, we have to go back to all these roles that God has given us as husband or wife. What is our specific role in marriage? Then we have to apply all these things. How can you obey him? I need to fulfill the role God has given me as husband or wife. I need to seek to be at peace as much as it depends on me and I need to win them by my godly behavior. You're not going to argue them in. You have to demonstrate it by the practical uh, aspects of God's love flowing through you to them. You need to even confess your sins and seek their forgiveness for what you have done wrong. And I guarantee you've done something wrong. You can find something. Even if they have most of it, you still find something. You set the example of humility. And then, do not let yourself be the cause of divorce. Find your fulfillment and comfort in God's promises of love to you. That's not easy. But as you do that, you will find you'll mature very quickly. And you do become an instrument of God's righteousness and love to that other person. Now, sometimes the marriage has occurred and you've married someone who's not a believer. They don't share with you the, the same love of God that you have. 
And you long for that and you wonder, why hasn't God saved this person? Of course, that can be true in a lot of other relations too. Why hasn't God saved this person? It could be a, a child. It could be a, some other loved one. or some, Why doesn't God save them? Well, first question is, who is God? Okay, Ephesians 1.4. God is the sovereign one who chooses people in Christ before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless before him. That's his character. That's who he is. Second question, what has God done? A lot of things. He has saved you and he has offered salvation to all. John 3.15 says that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. I love those whosoever verses. Those are wonderful. 1 John 2, 1 says, He himself, that is speaking of Jesus Christ, is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He's done everything that needs to be done. People need to respond to it, but he's already offered that salvation. Next question. What biblical principles apply? I've got a few over here. I could hear it. They're getting it. We're going to get it down yet. Okay, again, a lot of them. How about this one? James 5.16 The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. How about Luke 18, 1-8 There's a parable that Jesus gives to show that at all times we should pray and not lose heart. Over in 1 Peter 3, 1-2 and we already discussed this briefly but it talks about wives being submissive to their husbands so that even if they are disobedient to the word they may be one without a word by a chaste and respectful behavior. Then there's 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. These are things that God has done. These are biblical principles that apply. So the next question, how can you obey him? Well, certainly continue to be patient. Next, be fervent in prayer. Don't give up. Continue to pray fervently. Continue to live out the truth of the gospel before that, that unsaved one. Let your life match your words. And be content that the longing that you feel for their salvation is akin to God's desire for them to be saved. In fact, we'd have to say that God desires it more than you do. Jesus Christ died to save them. What did you do? Okay? He wants it more than you do. Do not let the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God lead you into some fatalism or think that you're a game piece in a cosmic chess match. It's not true. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 points that out, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You're God's ambassador and he wants to use you. So you can be content when you see yourself as God's messenger of mercy, the instrument of his patient, long-suffering love to your unsaved spouse or to other unsaved people around you. Never be complacent in your effort to love them and win them to Christ. And in doing so, you can be contempt in the situation. Well, those are relationship problems. Let's give some other examples. What about things that deal with material loss? You go outside and someone has smashed your car and left no information. It's just smashed. Or you get home and your house has been broken into and burglarized. Or you've suffered some other loss of something. Well, question one is, we're getting better. Who is God? He's the righteous judge of all the earth. And he will render recompense to the proud. Next question. What has God done? Romans chapter 8. 
He has provided the means in Jesus Christ for your sins to be forgiven so that you are no longer under his condemnation. And nothing can separate you from God's love. It's a wonderful chapter. Next question. What biblical principles apply? Again, a bunch of them. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That belongs to him, not you. Matthew 6.15 But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Be careful of your attitude. Luke 12.15 Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Be careful about your attitude towards these things that have been lost, stolen, or destroyed. Numbers 5.7 He shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to whom he is wrong. So there's justice that does need to be done. So I need to think through these things and then do what? How can I obey him? I seek justice, not revenge. And there's a big difference between the two. I seek justice, not revenge. I can require someone to pay the restitution while having an attitude of love towards them. I can require them to meet the, the requirements of the law while still being willing to forgive them. The attitude is very important here for us. And remember, you're not, life is not about the stuff you've got. So if, uh, if, if God owns it, and he does, and you don't own it, and you're just borrowing it for a while, if someone smashes your car in, what should your first prayer be? God, somebody smashed your car. What are you going to do about it? Okay? I'd rather have him dealing with them, all right? Would you want... I wouldn't want someone praying about that to me. I'll leave my car. I want to get it fixed. I'd rather deal with them than God chasing me down, okay? God, they smashed your car. What if it's worse than that and uh, you lose everything in some disaster? Your house burns down. There's been a flood, a tornado, an earthquake. Something has destroyed everything. You don't have anything left. Get home and there is no home. It's gone. Smoking... Smoke's rising from the ruins and that's it. Okay, first question. Maybe I just prompt better. We'll all do it together. First question. Oh, wow. That's great. Psalm 24.1. He's the one who owns all things. That verse says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So all that's in there plus you. Next question. What has God done? Acts 17.25 Paul's um, presentation here to pagans was telling them is he himself, that is Jesus Christ, God, gives to all life and breath and all things. He's the source. For everything that we need. Romans 2.4 talks about the same kind of thing. This is the kindness of God to us. Next question. What biblical principles apply? Romans 8.32 He freely gives us all things related to if he is not what he's done in Christ if that's the extent of it how will he not meet our other needs James 1.17 every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift from, his, from above coming down from the Father of lies with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow he's again our source 2 Peter 3.9-13 this thing goes on in fact let me read the passage because I love this passage because it gets down to the core issues of life the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things will be destroyed in this way, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I love that passage. It goes right to the end and saying, are you living with the end in view? The next question though. How can I obey him? How can I do this? I need to look to God to provide for me in the midst of my loss. He knows your needs. He knew it before you even began to pray. And he can meet your needs. And we can trust him for that. We also need to remember the end as well. If your house burned down, you know what? All that happened is they burned a little early. Now, you wouldn't want to say to somebody who just is standing there watching the smoke rise, hey, it just burned early. But you get the point. Okay? I can trust God in the midst of this. God can provide for you. In fact, God can provide for you even through me. I want to help. And that's how he works the body of Christ. Because he works through his people. Whatever possessions you have, that's not what your life is about. Be content with what you have and be grateful for it. Be grateful for it. Related to material loss, of course, is financial stress. Anybody ever have that? Especially around April 15th? Well, Christmas is one of those times, too. People's credit cards go zinging through the roof because they're disobeying all biblical principles. But that's another, that's another sermon. What if you find yourself suddenly unemployed? That's happened here in the Hudson Valley. So it happened, we moved here, and six months later, the IBM started laying off, and it's been continued that way for years. It's devastating. Suddenly, you don't have the job that you thought you had. So we've got to go back to our questions. First question, who is, who is God? The one to whom belongs the heaven and the highest heavens and the earth that is all in, in it. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Second question. What has he done? Psalm 136.25 He gives you food out of his loving kindness. He actually says, He who gives food to all flesh for his loving kindness is everlasting. Romans 2.4 again goes on to talk about the goodness and kindness of God to non-believers as well believers. Next question. What biblical principles apply? Matthew 6.33 Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. All the things, the stuff of common everyday life. Psalm 35.25 The psalmist there says, I have been young and now I am old and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or descendants begging for bread. What a wonderful principle to live on. So we can go to the next question. How can I obey him? Yes, I need to work hard to find an some new employment. And I'm going to work at that. But I put God's kingdom first and his righteousness first even in that pursuit while trusting him to provide what the needs that I have for daily life. I live in expectation that God can meet my real needs as I keep the priorities correct. But that's my real needs, not my wants. I may want, uh, I don't know, uh, what do I want? My mom asked me that the other day and I said I couldn't think of anything except maybe some razor blades. And Diane went and got those so she doesn't have anything to give me for Christmas. You know, we can always want something better. A, a new van with even more features than I have. Right? But if God gives me a minivan and we all cram in there, we you know what? We still get from point A to point B and that was the need. 
The need wasn't to arrive in luxury. It was just to get from point A to point B. God meets our needs. Not necessarily our wants, because our wants aren't always good for you. What I want is to eat chocolate constantly. But that would really be bad for me, wouldn't it? Well, it is a vegetable. It is a vegetable. We understand that. It is a bean. So that's a vegetable. If you, it's milk chocolate, you've got dairy. Well, we won't go through that. If you eat chocolate before every meal, you'll be so satiated you won't need to eat and that way you lose weight. What I want isn't always good for me. But God knows exactly what I need and he provides it, doesn't he? What if your financial income precludes you from gaining what others around you have? What if those around you are wicked people and you feel like Asaph did back in Psalm 73? They're prospering and here I am doing everything I can to live righteously and my life is hard. What if that's the situation? First question? We've got that one down. Exodus 34.6 He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And again, Romans 2.4 His kindness in His provision for mankind should cause the unrighteous to repent. Just at seeing His provision. Next question? What has He done for you? He's provided for your needs. Psalm 145 the eyes of all look to thee, and thou dost give them their food in due time. Thou dost open thy hand and dost satisfy the desire of every living thing. It comes from God. So next question. First Timothy 6, 7, and 8. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That's enough. That's all you really need. Psalm 73, this is Asaph. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. And then he goes on in the psalm to talk about how he was striving so hard and all he had was hardship. Then to verse 16 he says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. He got the eternal view back, and it helped tremendously. So we go to our next question. How can I obey him? I need to repent of my covetousness and my envy and I need to be thankful for what I have. That's the starting point. I then need then to remember to see things from God's eternal perspective. His final judgment is still to come and material wealth does no one any good when they stand before God. He owns it. They can offer him nothing. What about personal circumstances? What if you don't like your role as husband, wife, mother, father, caretaker, provider, uh, you know, whatever situation it is that God has placed you in, what if you don't like it? First question, who is God? Again, he's the self-sufficient one and need of nothing outside himself. Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. Needs nothing. And yet he made you for his own purposes, Isaiah 64a. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all of us are the work of thy hand. That's what, and what has he done for us? Second question. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I should have just about memorized all that. Jesus Christ, 
set aside the glories of heaven, humbled himself and became a man. Not just a man, but a slave, servant, and died in your place. That's what he's done for you. So the next question. James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6 and many other commands. Humble yourself before the Lord. Commands to be humble. And then have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This humility of looking out for others' interests rather than your own. Following the attitude of Jesus Christ who left the glories of heaven to become a man. What if we set aside in service to other people? And so the question then becomes, how can I obey him? I need to repent of my foolish selfishness. I need to have the attitude of Jesus Christ and apply it. I need to be the best that I can be in whatever role it is that God has given me. Because that's how I serve him. That's the starting place. Don't envy other people for whatever they have. Every role has its own positives and its own negatives. Good things about it and horrible things. But you know what? That's not where God has placed you. You deal with what you have and please him the best you can whatever role he has given you at the time for in your present situation circumstances. What about if your political freedoms are being lost? First question. Who is God? The sovereign Lord of all. Revelation 17.14 These will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Next, what has God done? Romans 7.14 He has set you free from your bondage to sin, self, and Satan. Romans 7.14, Romans 8.1 And in setting you free from that bondage, you are now no longer under condemnation in Christ Jesus. Because there is none. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, same basic idea. You were dead in your trespasses and sin and Jesus Christ, God made you alive together with Jesus Christ and raised you up and seated you with him. These are things that he has done. And you're worried about your political freedoms? So biblical principles that apply here, Romans 13, 1. God commands us to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Nebuchadnezzar found that out, Daniel chapter 4. Found it out the hard way. But his reason finally returned and he gave glory to God because he's the one that can raise governments up and he can crash them down just as fast. Up or down, it's within God's sovereignty. But there's also another biblical uh, principle. Philippians 3.20 Where's our citizenship? In heaven. You're an alien and stranger here. And that's wonderful because we know where we belong. So we're ambassadors, we're missionaries in an alien land. That helps a lot when we're dealing with things we don't like. What if John Kerry had one? Could we still be content? Yes, we could. We could be content because the scripture says so. So how can I obey him? Titus 3.1 Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. My attitude has to be right. I need to make it this. And I need to, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, I need to pray for those in authority. Even if I don't like them, I pray for them. 
I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And Paul writes this one. Who's on the throne? Caesar. Not exactly a godly individual. Okay? We can pray for them. Yes, we work to make changes in their living situations. We work within the freedoms we've been given here in our land, but we also remember the eternal perspective. We are aliens and strangers here. We have a more important kingdom that we're striving to make an impact for. Even our service within our community is really for his kingdom. We want people to get a glimpse of what God really wants for how we even live. And a final one for today. What if your kids rebel? For some, that's a reality. They've seen it, and it hurts. For some, it's fear. It's a big fear. But you know what? The same questions still apply, don't they? So the first question, all together, who is God? Psalm 145, 89. Again, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all his works. That's who he is. That's his character. The second question, what has he done for you? He holds you accountable for your actions while extending you a means of mercy of grace. Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. But Romans 8 is one as well. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Next question, what biblical principles apply here? Ezekiel 18, verses 4, and then jump into verse 20. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins will die. Jump into verse 20. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity, nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. James 5.20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. And Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And of course, there's many other principles we could apply as well. But implying these, the final question, how can we obey Him? Number one, recognize, repent of your own failures in raising your child. Has there ever been a parent that has not failed in some area in raising their children? None. We all fail somewhere. We don't do things perfectly. Okay? We need to be humble enough as parents to recognize that and admit it. Okay? Next, hold your son, daughter accountable for their own actions. Do not protect them from the consequences of their sin unless there is genuine repentance on their part. And too often we aggravate it because we do remove the consequences and they don't learn the lesson. Remember, the soul of your child is more valuable than your pride. And sometimes we pull them out of situations because we do not want to be ashamed of them. But their soul is more valuable than that. And also, their, their soul is more valuable for them to learn the lesson for the sake of their soul than removing from the misery of their own sin. Okay? Four simple questions we need to ask ourselves. And take some research sometimes. But no matter what situation comes in life, who is God? We've got to go back to his character. What is his nature? Second, remember who he is and what he has done. What has he done? 
And as we remember that, we see the track record that we can trust for the future. Next, what are the biblical principles that apply? That means I need to be a student of the Word, don't I? I need to know what biblical principles are there and search for them to find them to see where they'll fit in the situation. But that's also a reason for counselors, and we all need them. Other people who will clue us in is, hey, here's a principle that can apply in, in this situation in life that you're, or uh, circumstance of life you're dealing with right now. So we search for the principles, and then we need to obey those principles. We need to find specific ways we apply the character of God, the character that is expressed in how he has done things in the past, and the biblical principles, and live according to it. We need to be obedient to him. That's what Paul learned. It wasn't instantaneous. He learned it in the midst of all the hard circumstances he went through. And the more he learned it, the more he became like Christ, didn't he? The more he became like Christ, the more he could say, I've learned to be content. I don't need anything outside of me. Jesus Christ in my life is enough. He is sufficient, and because he's sufficient, as I walk with him, I'm sufficient in him. That's contentment. An ability to respond to all circumstances, experiencing all the full range of emotions, but responding in godliness and bringing glory and honor to our God. Next week, we're going to continue doing the same thing we did today, but we're going to concentrate on areas of physical hindrances and personal tragedies. Because we've all, we have those kinds of things come up too. If there's some specific thing you'd like me to address, just jot down on a piece of paper, either give it to me, put it in my mailbox in the office, or drop it in the faith box, and I'll include that in next week too. Because we need to live in the practical application of the truths of God's Word. And this is one way to help you to do that. Hopefully today you've seen things you've experienced and you see some ways now you can respond in godliness and in responding in godliness we gain contentment. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we love your word because it gives us the truth of who you are. It tells us what you have done and it gives us the principles by which you want us to live life. And so in obedience to those very things, we see our lives change. We see our lives conformed to the image of your Son. We see that we too can learn as Paul did to be content in any circumstance, to see your hand at work and rest in it. Father, I would ask your Holy Spirit to be prodding us on these very things today, throughout the week, that our lives might reflect more the glory that you deserve as you conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.